series in 1 Corinthians this morning, and so you can go ahead and take out your Bibles or your apps or whatever it is that you use to follow along with us. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can take out one of those blue paperback Bibles from the seat in front of you, and you can take that out and use it to follow along, and we hope that you will take that home with you. It's our gift to you uh, that you will take it and read it. If you, that one isn't in good condition, we have some out uh, in our lobby, so... Please do that. Um, as we continue our series this morning in 1 Corinthians, I want to talk to you this morning about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an act that comes naturally to human beings. I hope that's something that we can maybe all agree on in here. And that's because we often have a terrible time overlooking our differences or the wrongs that people have caused us enough to actually want to extend or offer ourselves to someone else in forgiveness. Um, Dr. Yuval Harari, some of you have been hearing me talk about him recently. He's a PhD historian coming out of Oxford, and he says that if history has taught us anything, it's that human beings are xenophobic creatures. And what he means by that is we are instinctively afraid of people who are different from us. We don't like people who are different from us. We put labels on people. And as soon as we sort of throw people out of our group, it's much more difficult to overcome our differences and then sort of forgive those people. And you can see, you know, the human, the nature, our nature to label people and, and separate from them. You can see that in even how certain cultures or languages have developed over time in the world. So for example, if you look at the Dinka people in the Sudan, in the Dinka language, Dinka means people. If you're not Dinka, you're not people. The Dinka's bitter enemies, the Nuer, in Nuer language, Nuer means original people. If you're not Nuer, you're not one of the original people. You see, it's sort of this us versus them mentality that's just embedded deep in human culture. And unfortunately, the church doesn't really have a much better reputation than the rest of the world does in this area. We have sort of have a lot of us versus them moments in our history that we have to account for, don't we? Um, you think about the Protestant Reformation, which we celebrate. We celebrate the great doctrinal truths that came out of the Protestant Reformation and all that happened there. But we also mourn the division and sort of the fighting and the maliciousness to the point that Christians were even willing to murder other Christians during that time. Did you know that uh, there's one day um, in the Protestant Reformation, it's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. On that day, more Christians murdered other Christians than the number of Christians who died under all three of Nero's persecutions combined in the first century. Okay, so we have a, a lot of us versus them moments in our history we sort of have to give an account for. And if you've spent any time in the church, if you've been trying to share your faith with people outside of the church, this has probably come up pretty often. How come Christians don't seem to treat each other much different than everybody else does? Well, what we're going to be seeing in our passage this morning is that the Corinthian church is in the midst of some pretty terrible us versus them situations. And we've already seen in the past sermons how the church had come to be divided, why they were divided, and now we're starting to see the practical outworking of that division in the church. Last week, it was the church's failure to maintain purity 
through the practice of discipline. And this week, what we're going to see is that the church is now so divided, they don't like each other so much, they're even willing to take each other to court rather than settle matters amongst themselves. And so let's go ahead and turn our attention now to God's word. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Please turn your ear to the reading of God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we need your help this morning to understand your word and apply it to our own hearts. We confess there are some topics and some words in this passage that may sort of make us Uh, squeam a little bit. And so, Lord, we need your help to sit under your word and not over it, thinking that we can judge it rightly for ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would drive us out of ourselves and draw us to Christ this morning. For we pray this in his name. Amen. So, three things I want us to see in our text this morning. Three questions I want us to answer together. Number one, what is forgiveness? Number two, uh, why should we forgive? And number three, how should we forgive? So, number one, what is forgiveness? The big problem that Paul is addressing in this text is that rather than dealing with conflict and and these issues amongst themselves as a church, they're taking it before the rest of the world in civil court. And historians have shown that the Roman civil system, just like pretty much every civil system, had a bias towards the rich, towards the powerful, towards the privileged, and looked down on the poorer members of society. And so what's likely happening in this scenario is that the richer, more powerful Corinthians in the church are taking the poorer Christians to court 
the ones who don't have much civil standing. And so look with me at verses 2 and 3 here real quick. Paul says that the issues the Corinthians are suing each other are over are trivial cases. And then he goes on to describe them even more. He says they're not only trivial, he says they're matters pertaining to this life. And uh, this phrase, this last phrase, they're matters pertaining to this life, that phrase is translated from one word in the Greek. And that word in the Greek is biotikos. And it simply means everyday stuff, the ordinary matters. And so essentially he's saying, you guys are suing each other over the everyday things. You should be able to handle this yourself. Now, I think this is an important point for us to pause on just real quick, kind of as a sub point, because some of you may be reading this passage and wondering, um, does this text mean that Christians should never go to court? Should Christians never consult the civil authorities? Is that what this text is saying? Well, I want you to hear me on this because I want to be very clear. That's not what this text is saying. This text is not saying that Christians should never go to court with one another. Uh, And we don't have time to sort of get into sort of all the ins and outs of when uh, it's appropriate to go to civil authorities. But I think we can make one important distinction here. And that is this. There are times in matters of great injustice or great personal harm or great personal safety where civil authorities must be consulted. And so, for example... In cases of rape, in cases of abuse, or other great personal harm or safety, the civil authorities must be consulted because they are the ones who can best execute justice in our society on those matters. God is a God of justice. He cares about his children, and this text does not dismiss that. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking, again, about the everyday stuff, the little things. You guys should be able to take care of this yourself. And so uh, it would be kind of like this. I've noticed recently in the church that we have some families with some teens who are driving now, uh, maybe getting, um, you know, a permit or a license or something like that. And so I'm going to pick on Evan Young because I saw him driving the family around last week. So it'd be kind of like this, all right? Imagine the Youngs are coming out of the back parking lot and Evan's sort of cruising, you know, he's ready to get home. He's got things to do. And so he's cruising down here the side of the church and I don't know, Will Mendoza's pulling out of the side, right? And bam, Evan hits Will's car and Will gets out and he's furious. How could you mess up my car, Evan? And just boom, he's like, I'm calling my lawyer, we're going to court. Sorry, man, right? That's what, it, that's what we're talking about here. Or, or imagine it's like this, I, again, I, I don't want to pick on it. Chris finds out that, I don't know, Kim's been slandering him in public, right? And instead of resolving the conflict amongst themselves, he says, you've slandered me, you've damaged my reputation, I'm taking you to court. Maybe someone in the church is renting their basement or renting your basement from you, and they're behind a few months on payments. And instead of finding a way to resolve that amongst yourselves, boom, take them to court. Got to pay me back. That's what we're talking about here is happening in this church. You see, at its root, a group of people that are so quick to sue each other, even over ordinary things, they're a group of people who have failed to learn how to forgive each other. There's a forgiveness problem in Corinth. And that's evidenced by the fact that everyone is suing each other rather than resolving conflict themselves. So 
when someone takes someone else to court, okay, let's say for financial restitution, let's say uh, Evan hits Will's car and Will takes Evan to court. What's the point in that, right? We would say the car is damaged and now Evan is in a kind of debt to Will until the damage is restored or until the debt is repaid. That's why we take people to court, right? To have the debt, the damage restored or repaid. Even in cases of slander or in cases of, you know, someone's gossiping about you in public. We would say there's now a kind of debt between us. You've damaged my name. And in a sense, we expect that person to pay us back. Like We expect you to restore that debt, to, to, to make up for the damage you've caused to my reputation. And so justice would say in these cases that the offender should repay the debt and the damages that were caused. But what happens if the offender is unwilling to repay the debt? Right? Or as is much more likely in this scenario, probably what was happening in Corinth, what if the offender is unable to repay the debt? Then what do you do? Well, one option would be some kind of vengeance, right? Vengeance is sort of maliciously punishing someone to make up for damages that were caused. Vengeance is taking justice into our own hands. And that might look like taking someone to court maliciously in order to sort of get the law to punish them, right? But I think most of the time we're not taking each other to court. No, vengeance is often much more subtle, isn't it? Vengeance is a little bit more insidious than, than that. Maybe it looks like permanently dissolving a relationship with someone after they've harmed you, even someone who used to be a friend or a loved one. Maybe it means holding a grudge, tossing someone a cold shoulder in order to punish them so that they know you're still mad at them and things aren't okay anymore. Maybe it means sharing that offense publicly with others to damage the offender's reputation as a way to sort of pay them back because they're in debt to you for the damage that they've caused you. Maybe it means you continue to bring up the offense with the offender to remind them what they've done to you. And friends, most of you know this path only leads to bitterness and pain, doesn't it? This path only leads to bitterness and pain. But there is another option, and that option is forgiveness. Here's what makes forgiveness so unique. Rather than demanding that justice be served and debts repaid, rather than taking matters into our own hands to execute justice and, and vengeance against our debtor, we cancel the debt and take it upon ourselves. Forgiveness means that we don't make someone repay for the damage that they have caused. We absorb that debt upon ourselves rather than taking it out on someone else. You see, when we really forgive someone, we're making a promise to them. In effect, we're promising that we will no longer bring up that offense against them. We're promising, like Dr. King said, that this offense is no longer going to remain a barrier to our relationship. We're promising that we're not going to nurse this pain or this hurt in private. We're not going to dwell on it anymore. We're promising that we're going to move forward together. 
And again, some of you probably know this, this path hurts too. It's going to hurt in the moment. Often it stings more than the path of vengeance. And that's because it's a kind of suffering. We have to take on a debt and a pain ourselves, one that we didn't cause. But eventually, that pain will lift. And it will, you will make room for joy. And you will feel the gift of life. But why? Why should we forgive? Why ought we to take on the pain that others have inflicted upon us? Well, there's several reasons why. Many of them are given in the Bible. One is because it's God's law. It's a pretty good reason. Jesus commands us to do it in the New Testament. Withholding forgiveness is toxic for our souls, kind of like we just said. And scripture talks a lot about sort of uprooting bitterness and uprooting hard hearts to make room for spiritual fruit, right? So that's a good reason. But none of those are the reasons that Paul gives here. No, Paul's concern for the church in Corinth is that their unforgiving hearts shames the church and it becomes an obstacle toward outsiders following Christ for themselves. I've recently uh, been reading Questlove's newest book on creativity. Questlove is the drummer from the band The Roots, which if you watch Jimmy Fallon, The Tonight Show, you see The Roots on uh, very frequently. So he's the drummer, and he just wrote this book. Uh, and, and one of the chapters in the book, he's talking about artist collaboration, okay? And he talks about how sometimes it's necessary for artists to work together in order to feed off of each other's ideas so that you can get new ideas for yourself. But then he says... But you got to be careful because there can be a dark side to collaboration. What happens if collaboration doesn't go well? Okay? And so, of course, he tells the now sort of infamous story of what happened to the Beatles. Right? And so many of you probably know this story much better than I. I'm not a huge Beatles fan. Um, But he talks about how one of the first conflicts that erupted in the band was between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. They didn't know who should get credit when they collaborate on on songs together, right? Like whose name should go first, who should get the credit, who who do you, you know, credit on the record and, and stuff like that. And so they were conflicting over that kind of thing. And then, you know, all this other stuff starts coming up. George Harrison wants to start getting credit for songs he's writing. They're all going behind each other's backs and recording separately in studios, working on their own private stuff. Yoko Ono's in the studio, John Lennon, and, you know, everybody's jealous of Yoko. And then what do you know? Next thing happens, they split, right? They break up. Okay. And of course we can acknowledge, you know, uh, the Beatles are this band that sort of transcends culture, right? I mean, they're revolutionary in so many ways. They revolutionized rock and roll, you know, all of that stuff, and we have to give them credit for that. But then when you think about their public breakup, it kind of puts a stain on their reputation, doesn't it? Kind of puts a stain on how we remember them. And so while they're revolutionary in some ways, in other ways, they're really not much different from every other band who got too big for their britches and split up over their big egos, right? In some ways, they're not really much different from everybody else. Look at what Paul is saying in verses 6 and 7. You would take a brother or sister to court and that before unbelievers? You've already lost at that point. You've already lost. It would be better for you to suffer wrong or be defrauded 
than to do what you're doing. Because by taking your conflict public, you're harming the public witness of the gospel. And you're showing that, you know what? Christians aren't really that much different from anybody else. The people of God are called to be remarkably unique when it comes to our ability to forgive others. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if someone slaps us on the cheek, we turn the other cheek. Someone sues us for a cloak, or sorry, sues us for our tunic, we give them our cloak too, right? And that's just so different from the way the rest of the world works. That's so different from demanding justice. It's so different from taking vengeance out on somebody else. It's so different from getting on social media to complain about everybody you don't like, right? In the, our age of outrage where something happens, we have to tell everybody how mad we are, right? This is very different, isn't it? Turn the other cheek. Forgive. So when we take our ordinary issues within the church and we make them public, we're showing the rest of the world that we're not really so different after all. And you see, the outside world already bears the church of God a grudge. And that's because the church would dare to confront the wisdom of the age. We would dare to say things that are different than the rest of the world. And so it's for this reason that people love to find evidence that proves Christians aren't really that different from anybody else. They love to find the proof. Because why should anybody pay us any mind with what we have to say if we're really not so different than anybody else? If we're not actually walking the walk and not just talking the talk? Let's say you go to a car shop. Okay, you've been going there for several years. And you've been, you think the car shop does good work. Okay, you're, you think you can trust them. And, uh, you know, you think they've charged you fairly and all of that. But then one day you're across town and you're at a gas station and you're getting your car filled up and there's another garage there attached to the gas station. You look in and you see that one of the mechanics from your shop is getting his car done at this shop. (laughs) What are you going to start to think? Like, that guy doesn't trust his buddies at his shop. And if he doesn't trust his buddies, should, should I trust them too? You see? So you see what Paul's saying here? Why should anyone trust you if you don't trust each other? Friends, people are watching us. I hope there are many people in this room who come Sunday to Sunday, who are checking us out. They're checking out this Christ thing for themselves, not only to see if it's true, but to see if it actually makes a difference in the way we carry ourselves, to see if it actually makes a difference in the way we live our lives. People are watching us here at church, they're watching us in our homes and in our families. They're watching us in the way we raise our children. They're watching us in our marriages. They're watching us in our friendships. They're watching us at work. They're watching us on social media. When we complain and grumble about the church, 
and we do so publicly. When we complain about our other brothers and sisters in the church publicly, it brings great shame to the church. When we harbor an unforgiving and bitter attitude toward others, we're showing we're really not that much different from anybody else. Probably shouldn't listen to what we have to say. And so, Paul says, it would be better for you to suffer loss. It would be better for you to be defrauded than to defraud the church by going public with your grievances. But how? Last question, how do we forgive? How are we to do this? Because while I would hope that all of us would agree for various reasons that it's good for us to forgive others, at some point, each of us is going to be different for each of us, but at some point, we're each going to reach a point where we say, I hear what you're saying, I know I should forgive, but here's the one thing that I will not forgive. Here's the one person I just, I can't do it. Maybe for you, that's a parent, or it's a spouse, or an old friend. Often it's the people closest to us who have the potential to bring us the most pain, isn't it? Is there something in your marriage or a friendship that took place in the past that you continue to bring up to hold against your spouse as a form of vengeance or punishment against them? Is there someone who you've been estranged from from a long time and that you've refused to offer forgiveness to? Neva, uh, she has some great family friends who I've had the privilege to get to know um, over the last several years that we've been married, five years, August 31st. Um, so the Lou family, um, they're, they're this great family. They've been so kind to, to us, so kind to Neva's family. They're some of the most generous people that I've ever met. And they have a daughter uh, named Jen who's about Neva's age. And uh, one day, um, back when they were in school together, uh, something tragic happened. Uh, they were walking home, and uh, Jen was walking a couple minutes ahead of Neva, and she had the right of way through a crosswalk. And uh, a high school girl wasn't paying attention, swerved out of the way, sped through the intersection, and bam, hit Jen. She goes up in the air, falls down on her back, slams her head on the pavement, and she's out. Okay? And I'll, I'll spare some of the details. It's a it's a tragic story, but also a beautiful one. Uh, Jen has made almost a full recovery now, and, uh, but they didn't know what a recovery would be like, right? She was in a coma for over three months, I think, and they had no idea. Is she going to make a full recovery? Is she going to have her memories? Is she going to have her personality? Is she going to have control over her motor functions? No idea. But what Neva remembers during this time, I think probably one of her first uh, moments, she says, where she was exposed to real Christianity, is she remembers hearing from the Lou family. And when they had no hope for what would happen to Jen, they had reached out to this driver and offered her forgiveness for what had happened. Friends, how does something like that happen? How can someone become so moved that they're willing to almost immediately forgive the person who put their daughter into a coma. I want to suggest that such radical acts of forgiveness only happen when we ourselves recognize how much we have been 
forgiven. You see, the Lou family had been transformed by Jesus. They knew how much they had been forgiven and they were able to now forgive others. You see, our ability to forgive others comes down to a matter of identity. Because an unforgiving Christian is a Christian who's forgotten who they are. An unforgiving Christian is a Christian who's forgotten who they are. Because if being a Christian, if, if being a Christian means nothing else, it means being someone who knows God's forgiveness deeply and personally for ourselves. So I want you to see now how this whole passage comes together because all of this talk about lawsuits is actually sandwiched in between two very powerful identity statements. And so look with me quickly at verses one to three. And let me just sort of summarize for you here what Paul is saying amidst all this talk about judging the world and, and judging angels. What he's saying is this. Don't you know who you are? You belong to Jesus now. And do you remember what he says earlier in Corinthians? He says, you belong to Christ and all things belong to you. Saying, don't you know who you are? You belong to Jesus. All things belong to you. Don't you get it? One day you're going to be, to have the ability to rule and to reign with Jesus. You're royalty now. So why aren't you acting like it? Look again now at verses 9 to 11. This is exactly how Paul ends the passage as well with these powerful identity statements. And these are really some of the most beautiful verses in all of the scriptures because they clearly communicate the drastic change that can take place, not only in the life of an individual, but in a community. Paul lays out here the kinds of people who are deceived and held captive by sin. They are those, he says, who will not inherit the kingdom of God because they're not royalty. They will not rule and reign with Christ because they are not found in him. Their identity is not in him. It's in this other stuff. It's in a sinful lifestyle. Now, I don't want to go into detail here in this list, but it's important that we get uh, the right, that we don't get the right teaching from the wrong text, you know? It's important that we don't get the right teaching from the wrong text. And so I do want to just share quickly, when you see this list of sins here taking place in verses 9 to 11, what Paul is doing is he's explaining the kinds of sins that can erode a community. Okay, some of these are obvious. Uh, Swindlers, revilers, the greedy, those are obvious how they can erode a community. But even sexual immorality can erode a community. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament, how most of the time when one of the authors gives a list of sins, that sexual immorality is almost always first. You ever notice that? That, that whenever we look at the, pay attention to that next time you see a list of sins. See, look at what's first. Sexual immorality is almost always listed first. And I think that's because sexual immorality has this ability to sort of harden our heart to make room for all kinds of other sins to grow, doesn't it? So think about, think about what it takes to hide a pornography addiction, right? What has to happen in a person 
who is hiding a pornography addiction. There's bitterness, there's jealousy, probably anger, lying, deceit. Right? You see how all those things are now going to work together to erode the family, to erode a relationship, which then has the power to erode a community. But, but, make no mistake here. The emphasis in these verses is not on the sin or the sinner. That is not the emphasis of this text. The emphasis is not on the sin or the sinner, but it's on the kind of transformation and new life that Jesus brings. That is Paul's point. And such were some of you. And such were. And such were some of you. There are three successive statements here. They're all plural. They're all past tense. You all were held captive by sin, but not anymore. Because you all were washed by Jesus. You all were sanctified, which means you're already holy. That's what it means to be a saint. You're a holy one now. You all were justified, which means you now have right standing with God. He sees all of you as he sees Jesus. How is that possible? Because there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus to set us free and to make us new. There's power in the name of Jesus to make this community new, to make you new, and to make me new. Jesus sets us free, and he cancels the debt that we have earned by sinning against God. And such were some of you. Is that true of you this morning? Have you acknowledged the debt that your sin has earned before God? The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death because we are sinning against the cosmic and eternal God. But as we read from Colossians 2, God has the power to make us alive in Jesus Christ. He forgives us our trespasses. He cancels our debt. And he makes us new. He makes us new. How then is the church a forgiving community? Because we know more than anybody else what it means to be forgiven. We know what it means to have our debts canceled. We remember who we were and now who Jesus has made us to be. Those who know that they've been forgiven much will be quick to forgive others. 
The Lord's Supper, which we're going to be coming to now in just a moment, communicates forgiveness in a unique way, doesn't it? When we partake of eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are tasting God's forgiveness. We are tasting forgiveness. I want you to remember that this morning. The body of Christ broken. The blood spilt so that you might be forgiven. And as we remember the forgiveness we have received in Christ, we ought to be so moved to forgive others. This table is a very real, tangible way to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation in the church. Do you want a really practical way to apply this text this morning? Just immediately practical way to apply this text? As the bread and the juice come around this morning, ask God to help you forgive that person here in this church who you've been estranged from and you've been withholding forgiveness from. Resolve to go find them after church and extend your forgiveness to them. Maybe put your arm around a friend sitting next to you and pray for each other. Ask that God would give you the faith to forgive others in your lives. Maybe put your arm around your spouse and ask God to help you forgive each other for the things you've said to each other this week. It's very practical. This meal, which we are about to take of together, it binds God's forgiveness to us. It binds God's forgiveness to us for all of our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. And so if you are a professing Christian and a member in good standing of any Bible-believing church, we invite you to take freely of the bread and the juice as they come to you. But if you have not committed your life to following Jesus, if you have not acknowledged your sin debt and your need for pardon and forgiveness, we're really glad that you're here. And we hope this will be a safe place for you to engage and to ask questions no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. But we would ask you not to take the bread and the juice as it comes around. And that's not because we're trying to be exclusive or elitist in any way. That's just because without God's forgiveness, the bread and the juice, they don't mean anything. It's just a little gluten-free cracker, a little cup of juice. That's it. And so instead, we'd ask you to consider everything you've heard this morning. And perhaps today, to pray and ask God to show himself to you. To forgive your sins and to give you the faith to follow Jesus. And let me assure you of this. Perhaps you feel as if your sin debt is too great. Perhaps you feel like you've gone too far. There's no forgiveness left for you. Listen. That's just not true. Jesus has the power to cancel every debt and forgive every sinner who calls upon his name. So will you call upon him today? If you have any questions about what that means for you, for your life, please come find me after service and I would love to talk with you. As we continue now in our service, we're going to sing a song of response and then we'll come forward to the table together. So let's pray now. 
Father, we confess that we often forget how much we have been forgiven. As William Gurnall said, we need to keep the receipts on your pardon and your forgiveness in our lives. Lord, help us to remember what you have saved us from and how deeply we have been forgiven. How beautiful are those words, God, and such were some of you, but not anymore. Lord, transform us, transform our church, that we would be a bold and powerful witness for Jesus Christ here in Montgomery County and around the world. Be with us now in the remainder of our service, we pray, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.